Welcome to the Elk Hunt Podcast with myself, Cody Rich. This feed is home to the best elk hunting podcast that I've done over the last seven years. And if you want to be a better elk hunter, then you're in the right place. If you want the blueprint that I developed after interviewing hundreds of the best elk hunters in the world and 20 plus years of my own hunting experience, check out my new Elk Hunt 201 course. It's a four-step system for doubling your success. It's a framework to give you a step-by-step system that you can build off of for finding elk, getting close to elk, and killing elk without getting lucky. Check it out. Link in the show notes. Hi, buddy. Welcome to the podcast. We're going to do Wapti Wednesday. Uh, are you ready for hunting season? Not ready? Stoked? What's your level? Uh, uncertain. You know, I'm... I'm actively getting ready all the time it's a year-round endeavor it's never like i get to take a break and be like oh hunting season's over now i can stop working for a little bit it's it's just not like that and i never get to stop i think i'm on track to be where i want to be at the start of archery season i don't know anything like there's (laughs) never been a a less certain time for for hunting i've had a couple international hunts get canceled already this year. Um, you know, we had non-resident hunting get shut down this spring by the governors. And frankly, COVID is worse now and getting worse by the day than it was this spring. So it's, it's rational to anticipate that the governors may close non-resident hunting again, which would mean that, you know, none of my clients get to come because they're all non-residents. So I, and from, I don't from know the what outfitting this... perspective. It's just like, I was talking to Cole Kramer about this a uh, weekend ago, uh, man, talk about uncertain times, unpredictable. Like I I'm, that's my fear too, is like non-resident across the country is going to get shut down. But I think the best you can do is like plan on it not happening and then hope for the best. Yeah. I, I mean, I just have to keep moving forward and, and yeah. acting as if the season's going to be a go until it's not. Um, and then make adjustments from there. But I still can't guide fishing in Oregon because I can't be within six feet of a client, um, which is an impossibility, right? So I haven't guided a single trip this year. And if I lose this hunting season, uh, it, it's the end of my business, quite, quite frankly. I can't survive an entire year without income. That's insane, man. That's oh, it's frustrating. Uh, yeah, I won't even dive into the politics. Maybe we'll do that after podcast. Uh, so I was actually showing you a couple of books. Today we're going to dive in um, and talk about this book, which is Predator Prey Dynamics a little bit. I want to talk about wind. Uh, you and I covered that once before. Um, and man, I got a ton of feedback on that podcast. And then I want to talk about this book, which is Elk of North America. Actually, I just want to talk about food sources and things like that. Something most people don't think about. Um, but before we dive into that, I want to talk a little bit about elk habitat and behavior. We've been doing some podcasts and we're talking about like prairie elk and open country elk, things like that. And one of the questions that people were asking, like, well, that's not my area or, or whatever. And I'm like, okay, I should probably address these as we have guests on like yourself, uh, very, very knowledgeable um, but we should talk about like what type of terrain you hunt. And then we'll talk about a little about elk behavior and things. Cause I think sometimes it can be confusing for guys to listen to me talking to say Dan Picard, who's hunting elk in Wyoming. And then there's a guy that's like, Oh, I hunt Eastern Oregon. Um, elk, but these elk don't do that or whatever. And so like, 
these are all things to take into consideration and you should like elk are a little bit different throughout the country. Elk in New Mexico are different than elk in Montana. Um, and even Montana, Oregon have variations, right? So, uh, before we get started, James has been on multiple times. He's an elk wizard. One of the higher rated guests, I would say when it comes to talking about elk, but I want to give a little bit of back story and maybe say like what kind of country when we talk about elk behavior and elk that you've seen or experienced, what kind of what kind of regions are we talking about that you've experienced that in? I've hunted elk in short grass prairie. I've hunted elk in extremely steep canyon country that is largely barren except for some timber in the north. I've hunted elk in dark timber and in flat timber plateaus. And then I've hunted um, elk in completely alpine areas. The, the habitats that I've not hunted elk in are sort of extreme desert environments, like some of the places uh, that we see in the Southwest. Um, and then like the, the Eastern Montana stuff, um, I've, I've dealt with that a little bit, although I haven't actually hunted or guided in that scenario where you sort of have, you know, burned timber largely and soft rolling, breaky, um, grass covered stuff, but I do have a pretty good breadth of elk hunting experience. The other thing that I haven't done at all is uh, Roosevelt hunting. So a lot of times when people hear elk in Oregon, they're like, Oh, there's Roosevelt's. It's like, well, yeah, for like a little part of, um, Oregon, there are Roosevelt elk, but for the most of the state, it, it's all Rocky mountain elk. And that's my experience. So I haven't hunted, um, little elk in, in the rainforest, like what you grew up with. Little elk, bigger elk. <laughs> As a meat hunter, I feel like you should respect the Roosevelt who produces more meat. But does it? Does it <laughs> yeah. actually? Yes. Hands down. <laughs> so what, what, what I hear from, from a lot of guys is that they're bigger, right? It's like this, this Texas thing. And then what I hear from other dudes is that, you know, a one and a half or two and a half year old bull will be bigger than its Rocky Mountain equivalent. But when you're talking about a mature bull, um, it, it splitsies on, on whether a mature Rocky or a mature Rosie is bigger. I've actually weighed a lot of elk guts in on the hook. So I have a good understanding of what, what Rockies actually weigh. Um, and it's typically less than what people will, will tell you. And it's a special situation where you can actually weigh an elk guts in and know what his total body weight is. Um, and that's just what a is the average, I, What's the average weights that you're seeing? 700 pounds, 700 pounds, pretty consistently. So when guys yeah. say it's like an 800, 900 pound elk, it's, it's probably an exaggeration. It's probably an exaggeration. And honestly, it's probably somebody who's never weighed an elk, <laughs> you know, it's probably it, more it, off of the case. Yeah. Right. And, and it's tough. Like, how are you going to get an elk in a situation where you actually get to weigh them? Um, and you can do so efficiently without risk of spoiling the meat. You know, I'm going straight from a hook that has a, a scale on it to a rail that goes into a walk-in cooler. Um, so the reason that I'm bringing these elk in before gutting them is because I can gut them so much cleaner in this controlled environment. And it, it's a total luxury. It's a special situation. Yeah. But because of that, I'm able to gather some scientific data um, being their, their live weights and their hanging weights. I will say that it depends largely um, on the time, of, the time of the rut, the time of the year, because these, 
these um, more aggressive satellite bulls and the herd bulls that are defending against a lot of satellites, they'll lose a hundred pounds or more in the rut. That's insane. So an early September bull can easily be around that 800 pound mark. And, you know, as I watch him throughout the season and watch him get more gant and see his stomach start to cave in a little bit, um, I'm estimating that they're losing at least a hundred pounds. That's very interesting. You know, when we talk about like, uh, not to get off on a side tangent, but the meat that comes off of it, because a lot of times you'd say uh, one third, right? Uh, so say it's a 700 pound elk, let's just say 600 pound elk that you're at, you know, what's that? 200 pounds of, of in product meat. Is that pretty accurate from what you've seen? Well, you're going to lose 40% twice, basically. So you're going to lose about 40% when you take off head, hide, and guts. And then you're going to lose another 40% when you take out all the bone. Um, so 40% of your live weight is going to be pretty close to your hanging weight. And then your actual yield is going to be about 40%, 40 of, that. of, yeah. So elk bones are extremely dense. They're much more dense than, than beef bones. And they'll dull a knife a lot faster, kind of as a product of that. But they just don't have the the nutrition that domestic livestock get access to. So they grow a little bit slower. It's similar to the way a uh, a tree in a dry area will grow with really dense growth rings. Whereas if it gets a lot of water, you'll have actual space between the growth rings. Similar type of deal. So elk bone is just quite a lot harder and quite a lot more dense. Interesting. I want to talk a little bit about uh, elk habitat. You know, you had mentioned that you had hunted elk in a lot of different variations of terrain from steep canyons to the grasslands. Do you see large shifts in the behavior of the elk that you've hunted? It really depends on the, the types of pressure the elk experience. And each habitat is going to offer a different type of pressure. And if it's public land, then that pressure could be uh, a lack of a, a lack of habitat, for example, like they don't have the thermal cover, they don't have the openings, they don't have the vegetation that they really, really want. But they're there because they're getting away from some other form of pressure. That type of pressure can also be from hunters. It can be from predators. It can be from weather from from the area that they live in and that actual microclimate. So all of those pressures will play a role in determining how an elk behaves. But generally speaking, an elk is, is an elk machine. So if you can understand the inputs that go into the machine, you can also understand the outputs. And in that way, they're, they are predictable if you can understand all the inputs. And we can never understand all of them 100%. Otherwise, you know, it would only take me 10 minutes to go elk hunting every year. <laughs> so what are, the most, like, what are the most important inputs to you? And, and what can people understand better? I mean, let's dive into that a little bit and talk about like, okay, Inputs. We talked about like the habitat or I guess the, the pressure, so to speak on public land. That's an input can be a very important input. It can be not that important. Depends on the elk, depends on the, the variables. Like you said, you can never understand all of them and there's a dynamic flux between them all, right? Like, so if pressure is one, but yet they're having uh, say human pressure versus predator pressure versus uh, the food that they have, how far are they going to travel? All these things, like they're all variables. So you can't say, well, you can't give human pressure a number and then that's going to determine what the elk are going to do based on like, okay, the human pressure is a one out of 10. Right. And it, 
And also the impact of one pressure um, can be magnified if an elk population or, or their status is affected largely by something else. So pr like predation, for example, we, as hunters, we love to blame predators because a predator to a human hunter is a, com is a competitor, right? That's our mm -hmm. competition out there. We're, we're both competing for the same resource. Predation doesn't necessarily have an effect on population of a healthy population, if that makes sense. So if you have a really strong, healthy elk population and they've got, you know, all the other things that they require in their habitat, you can put a bunch of predators in there and the elk are going to be fine. But if they get compromised by, say, disease or, um, or a drought summer or harsh winter uh, over time, and then the population starts to go down as a product of that, now predation can have a really significant role. And that's what we saw in the North Yellowstone herd, in the, um, in the Selkirk herd, some of these really big herds of elk that just crashed and we lost you know, 20,000 animals in a matter of a few years. And it definitely was due to predation, but they had habitat stressors prior to that. And, when you added an extra predator, um, in these cases, you know, wolves, grizzlies, um, in increases in mountain lions, increases in black bears. Now these populations just absolutely crash and people want to, want to say, Oh, it was predators, but really that was like the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah. Do you think it's important, uh, to stay away from, populations that are affected by multiple predation and or other factors, say pressure, hunting pressure, those things. So when I look at like, okay, say I'm an Oregon resident and I'm like, oh man, the wolf population in Northeast Oregon is, is terrible. I'm not even going to hunt there anymore. Uh, because those elk are always on edge or those elk are always, they're, they're lower numbers. They're on edge. There's a lot of factors. I mean, obviously hunter numbers are up. So all these factors increased, I should stay away from that area and hunt lower density elk that aren't pressured by other pressure pressures. Uh, or do you just go where the elk are? It really depends on your resource objective and, and your adaptability. So if you're an adaptable person, then you can go after high pressure elk and you can continually change your plan until you figure out sort of how the Rubik's cube goes back together. <laughs> but if you're not an adaptable person and you know that about yourself and you, you have a method that, that works on unpressured elk, for example, then you need to go find unpressured elk, even if there's only a handful of them in some remote basin and you've got to, you know, hoof it for 14 miles to get back in there. Yeah. If that's the advantage that you need, then that's what you have to do in order to be able to achieve it. You know, I, I like to see hunters, you know, think a little bit bigger than themselves. Um, so, you know, it, what is, what is your goal? It, you know, at the end of it, if you harvest an animal, you're going to get a pile of meat, regardless of what that animal is. Choosing which animal you're actually going to harvest is going to change the quality of that meat for sure. Right. So if you kill a, a big herd bull during the rut, that's low quality meat, son. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't care who you are. If you go to Alaska, a lot of these, uh, a lot of these butcher shops won't even accept bull caribou during the rut. They're like, that's inedible. <laughs> and Alaskans are a little bit picky about food. So, you know, we can find colored up salmon that are, you know, bright red and, you know, only have a few 
fungus spots on them and we're like heck yeah we got a salmon <laughs> if you go to alaska and it has like the slightest blush of pink coming over it they're like no nah, that's not edible throw it back <laughs> let's get a bright one um that's so an abundance that's an abundant situation though that is an abundant situation and it's similar with caribou but we just have to be honest with ourselves about animals that are working hard that are not consuming vegetation to to keep up with their energy outputs um they're loaded up with hormones and and uh probably dehydrated like that's frankly that's a low quality meat product yeah i i would never butcher a you know a, a beef bull right in the middle of when he was breeding cows like that would be terrible yeah it wouldn't even be ethical okay so you just have to think about um about what what your goal is and then maybe talk to your biologist and be like hey what's the herd dynamics like here what would benefit the herd the most um what what age class should i be targeting like that would be pretty punk rock if somebody was like hey i actually want to benefit this elk herd and they go to the biologist and the bio says, yeah, actually, we've got just a bunch of three-year-old bulls. And um, I'm concerned that if they all make it to maturity, that they're going to fight each other really hard. And then we'll have a sudden die-off of, of mature bulls because there's too much competition. Like having roosters of the same age, it's just a constant battle, right? Yeah. Um, and then that guy goes out and targets a three-year-old bull. Like that would be awesome, right? <laughs> I want to give that guy points. Like, do you get Boone and Crockett actual conservation points for that? <laughs> Dude, that's a that's a deep well. Uh, I agree to some extent, but also like for me, there's a reason I go hunting. Uh, if I wanted to shoot, like, a, say, I mean, a spike would be the best tasting elk out there. So why doesn't everyone just go shoot a spike? Because some of it is the experience. Some of it's like there's other factors. We've dived into this a lot, but um, if I had, I mean, if I could hunt all season and then kill a spike the last day, yeah. Like if there was a guaranteed spike the last day, all for it. I mean, my <laughs> wife would be even more happy because she's like the, the big bull we killed last year. She's like, this elk is not very good. You should, you should figure out how to kill a better tasting elk. <laughs> well, and that's why I brought up the point about managing for your own resource objective. So just be honest with yourself about what you're trying to do. And I'm not saying that everybody needs to go out there and like do the right Choose thing by conservation because I know <laughs> that they're not going to. Um, and I'm not always going to do the right thing either. Like I love shooting big bulls. I got a couple of them behind me on the wall right now. Yeah, those bulls behind you didn't taste very good. I can tell you that. <laughs> no, no, they did not. Uh, so when we dive into like one of the things you touched on, I want to circle back to was the fact that like going somewhere 14 miles in where there's less elk, but less pressure in your opinion, guy who just wants to have a great experience and kill an elk. Let's not get into like what the elk tastes like, but Hey, I think a majority of people are, are out to kill a good representative of the species. That's a very loose term. But if you were talking about less pressure, deeper in, or more elk, more pressure. Target of opportunity says, you know, if we're in an area with a thousand head of elk, uh, we have probably more, more times that target of opportunity is going to circle around. If we have an area that has five elk, but no pressure, there may be a higher likelihood of killing those five elk. In your opinion, your experience, which one would you choose? Um, you know, if you can get that meat out effectively, from from deep in the backcountry, then go for it. And I would rather have have fewer elk, 
and and less pressure and less education with those elk. So one of the biggest bulls I've seen come out of the Idaho backcountry, I know that bull got called in five times before he got killed. And some of these front country bulls, he can be a raghorn. And, you know, if you call him in once, you better get an arrow into him because he's been called in to like three other groups of dudes. (laughs) So it's not just your experience with him. Yeah. Um, you know, but if you go super deep and super remote, that may be the only human experience that that elk has ever had. And you can screw it up a few times and be the only one who's screwing it up and still be able to eventually capitalize on it. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree. Like I do this catch point too. I think it goes both ways. I think it's, I think it boils down for me, like what you want out of the experience. I think a lot of times you go remote, you're going to have, um, it's much easier to call those elk in. Like you said, Sometimes you'll bump into elk and they'll look at you like they're really not sure what you are and they've probably never seen a human before. That's, that's a good chance to get a shot on them when they've never even seen a human. They don't have that instant fear of your smell, uh, you know, all those things. But having said that, you can, I, for me, I've always had more opportunities in the front country because you can cover more ground, you can be more mobile, all these things. So it's a balancing act for sure. Yeah, and there's just kind of a misnomer that guys that go super deep um, are are doing so to to make everything about the trip harder. And like the hard thing is getting there and then getting the meat out. Everything else about that is easier. Those are easier animals to hunt when you're super yeah. deep and remote. And one thing that I'll say is a lot of guys, man, you you pull out a map and you just figure out what the most remote point is. Like you try and get the farthest away from a trail on a road and everything. And you, you kind of Mark live, say this, this whole, whole thing out. And then you go there and a bunch of other dudes figured out the same thing. There's only one point on the map like that. So don't, don't just go for super crazy remote and, and, and think about it from the animal's perspective. Like they need some refuge. Um, if you can find a, a closer elk someplace, hunt a closer elk. Um, let's, let's leave some portions of the wilderness for these animals and not just, you know, flood in there and, and get after them. And, you know, I'm proud of the guys that bomb in and go super remote. And I I know that's tough because, you know, you're carrying your camp, you're carrying your food, and then you're trying to figure out how to get a couple hundred pounds of elk meat out afterwards. That's a really difficult thing. It is so difficult. In fact, that the reality is a lot of that meat goes bad before people can make two or three trips to get it all out. Yeah. I recommend someone pack a bull three miles before testing if they can pack it nine miles. Yeah, that's a really <laughs> good point. And if you do that by yourself, and you know, I figure that there's I've done it in less, but there's four man loads on a big bull elk. Yeah. Um, I guess I've I've packed half an elk out before. I don't walk right anymore. Don't do that. <laughs> so let's say there's four loads. And let's say that you hike in three miles and shoot that bull, and then you bring out a quarter of it. Okay, now you're six miles in. You go back in, bring out the next load. Okay, now we're at 12 miles. Now we're 18 miles. Now we're at 24 miles. It's like, ooh. Yeah. 21, yeah. I guess, would be the last one. But yeah, now you just carried um, over 100 pounds, 21 miles. Like, you're you're going big on this right now. <laughs> no. Yeah. Dude, it adds up. 
Uh, and I, yeah, I highly recommend that. I, I see a lot of people who go too far. Uh, let's transition a little bit. I want to talk about wind. That's the one thing I want to talk about in this podcast. Uh, you yes. and I've had some deep conversations some very windy conversations about this. Um, and one of the things that I think least understood when it comes to elk hunting mountains. Um, I know there's a lot of people that come from the East to the West. I think there's the conversation around thermals is cute, but it's like, doesn't even scratch the surface. So I think there's a lot of people that come hunting out West and they're like, Oh yeah, I get it. Understand thermals when it goes up, when it goes down slightly more complicated than that. Um, and if anyone has ever been in the mountains, when it feels like the wind is blowing in every direction, nothing will piss you off more. Uh, and it always seems like the wind blows at your back right when you're about to kill an elk. Is that right? It does happen to a lot of guys. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, uh, I want to break this conversation down. I was like, try to be more, you and I had this conversation before and it wasn't super organized. So I tried to like formulate how we're going to do it and took some notes. Uh, okay. so lead me so, through this buddy. Yeah. Well, I feel like you understand this as well as anyone. So break down the simple math of thermals first. Sure. Thermals. Thermals are also called diurnal winds. Diurnal meaning daytime. So you have diurnal, crepuscular, and uh, nocturnal, basically as, um, as the three times of day that things are active. So we talk about thermals as diurnal winds, daytime winds. When the ground gets warmer than the air, then heat will begin to rise in the form of wind that goes uphill. When the ground becomes cooler than the air, then that will cause the air to sink and wind will go downhill. It's, it's really as simple as that. And the way that the air actually heats is through the solar gain of the ground. So as ultraviolet rays from the sun hit the ground, then the ground can, can gain energy and retain it through mass. and it will begin to put off that heat. So it's not the sunlight going through the air that heats up the air. It's the sunlight hitting the ground and then the air getting warm because the ground underneath of it is warm. And that's perfect. Uh, and then basically that's this rough version overlying. And that this, what you hear most often is when you talk about thermals, people are like, okay, when, as it heats up throughout the day, the sun starts at the, the far side of the mountain, it's going to start to rise, um, creating this. Now, what happens because of that and because of mountains is there's a lot of complex turbulence throughout mountains, right? So if it was, we were talking about a dome mountain sitting out in the desert, like it would be one thing and these thermals would make sense. But because certain areas heat up faster than others, because, because of prevailing winds, because of a lot of factors, right? It's almost impossible to predict wind. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, it, it is very difficult. And the way that the ground heats is not uniform. And that's kind of what you're getting at. And color has a lot to do with it. Mass has a lot to do with it. Um, so there are times when, say, you have a, a hillside that's completely covered in dead annual grasses. It's going to be light in color. And that's going to reflect a lot of heat. But if you have um, the opposing hillside that's all black lava rock, lava rock, <laughs> then that is going to have tremendous um, absorption of, of thermals. 
Okay, so which one of these, if they have equal heat, is going to have a stronger uphill wind? It's definitely going to be the, the black side of the hill because that ground is going to continually um, heat more than the air above it. So you're going to have to have air rising off that. When you're looking um, during the day and you see heat waves, the little squiggly things, um, they're not really heat waves because you can also see them on a cold day. What you're actually seeing is the difference between air temperatures because light travels through different temperatures of air at different speeds. Um, so what you're seeing is a hot part next to a slightly less hot part or a cold part next to you know a slightly colder part. And that's what causes these wiggles because the energy is moving in waves. Yeah, no, and 100%. And the, the other thing you, to think about, so like when you have like, let's just assume a box canyon, we talk about one side's lava rock and one side's timber. And what happens is when one side's heating up, when the air, I mean, air, when air starts flowing up on one side, it's inherently going to create movement throughout the air because you have these pressures, essentially high pressure, low pressure that's creating in canyons um, that people don't think about. So you're like, it's not this base, it's not as basic as as it, the day warms up, it rises because somewhere else it has to displace that, right? Yeah. And that, that would really be, you know, if it was just thermals going up and down, that would be a, a static controlled environment. Yeah. But you have the other side of the hill that's not experiencing the same thermal gain, it has different types of vegetation. So you have high pressures and low pressures. So you have the thermal winds, but then you also have a prevailing wind. So we have this jet stream that's moving across North America um, you know, from, from the West. So when we talk about winds, and this is really important, if I say a North wind, that means that the wind is coming from the North, okay? That you can fight me on it. Like that's, <laughs> that's how it works. And a lot of people don't understand. They think that a North wind is like maybe where the wind is going to. That's not it. <laughs> um, so. We have a, a westerly prevailing wind across most of the West. Um, so in your area, you can actually research and find out what the prevailing winds are. And a good resource for that is the airport. Like call the airport and be like, hey, what's our prevailing winds? And they'll tell you because they keep data on it on a daily basis. Um, so we have our, our diurnal winds that are coming up and down. We have our prevailing winds, which is just the, the dominant normal wind and then we also have storm winds so when you have a low pressure system which is going to be next to a high pressure system you have wind coming off that and wind comes off of a low pressure system going counterclockwise and it comes off of a high pressure system going clockwise a low pressure system is going to be your storm um, so kind of a fun thing to do if you've got a storm not too far away from you put the wind at your back hold out your left arm and you will be pointing at the storm. And as that storm moves, then the wind is going to switch directions. If it comes directly over the top of you, say it's like a thunder cell, it's going to switch directions 180 degrees as soon as it's over the top of you because that wind is continuously coming off. You know, it's like, uh, it's like paint flying off of a spinning plate. But Interesting. low pressure system storms are always doing it um, counterclockwise. So within the, like the Rocky mountains, uh, pretty common that you have evening thunderstorms, right. Or afternoon thunderstorms, um, are those low pressure systems and are those going to create those type of winds? Yep. Those are low pressure systems and a thunder cell, you know, a, a cumulonimbus cloud that's developed and kind of gets that big anvil top on it. 
-hmm. if it's early enough in the day, you know, if it kind of hits that anvil by like three or 4 PM, you can expect to get some lightning out of that, but you're definitely going to have winds coming off of it. And as it's moving, those winds are going to be coming off in that circular direction, counterclockwise, wherever it goes. And that's fascinating. So the other thing to think about, let's just talk about your standard westerly Western wind. Is that right? Western wind. Uh, as it pushes through your, let's call it your prevailing wind. doesn't really matter, but your prevailing wind in your area, how does that get affected in mountain terrain when you have large canyons, small canyons, all those things? Well, it's very affected by, by the terrain and in aviation, especially uh, rotor wing or helicopter aviation, what they measure is the 20 foot wind. So that's the wind that's 20 feet off the ground that doesn't have quite as much turbulence from kicking over trees and things like that. But yeah, as that wind goes over either vegetation or topography, it's going to act similar to water. So you're going to have eddies. Um, you're going to have, you know, what, what would look like rapids in a river. Um, you're going to have pools. You know, if you find a meadow in the woods, that's a pool of cold air. You know, that's a microclimate that prevented the trees from being able to grow in that specific area. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. So the, the vegetation is going to tell you what normally happens. And if you spend a night in a meadow, you're going to wake up with frost on your face um, <laughs> because it's colder right there than it is in the trees that are right next to you. Interesting. Interesting. So like oh, the one thing I really like, um, and we've talked about this before, but I want to cover it again, uh, is on, thinking of the mountains like water. And if you look, say you look at your elk area and this'll, this'll happen. If you're, you elk hunt long enough, you'll, you'll look in an area and be like, okay, there's, there's elk, there's a herd of elk across this Canyon or two ridges over, uh, wind right here is doing this. I'm going to run over there. And all of a sudden the wind is different. And you had kind of touched on this, like thinking of wind as water. And I love this concept because this is hard to do on a podcast, but if you had a, let's say a wind that was going West to East and was trailing a large Canyon with smaller shoots or canyons coming off of that, uh, the pressure of that west to east wind pushing through the canyon is going to draw those smaller canyons out. And so like looking at, if you imagine wind as water and you look at this terrain, you look at this mountainside or whatever it may be, you can almost visualize what the wind is doing or semi predict what the wind is going to be doing in certain areas of the mountain based on that. Like, okay. If this is the predominant wind, the prevailing wind is driving through this canyon, what's that pressure doing is going to pull that pull the air, not wind, but pull the air out of smaller canyons, which is going to create a downdraft. So you can be like that in theory, there's a thermal updraft, but if you have a strong enough prevailing wind, it can override that and be pulling the air down through a smaller micro canyon. Correct. Yeah. Or creating this sort of back and forth, um, this, this tug of war of high pressure and low pressure. Yeah. So if you have thermals that are trying to fight their way uphill, but you've got a storm or prevailing wind that's trying to pull that wind downhill, that's where you're going to have wind going back and forth. And an elk loves that situation <laughs> because now he's getting feedback from 360 degrees, more realistically from 180 degrees in two different directions, which basically tells him everything that he needs to know. Yeah. Um, and elk will seek out places that that, that occurs in. You know, they don't want to just go bed down in a place where they're only getting feedback from one direction. They want to go bed down in a place where 
okay, sometimes it's blowing uphill, sometimes it's blowing downhill. And now they know everything about their threats in every direction. And that's why so many times when, when hunters are getting close to a bull, the wind switches on them. It's like, you know, that was on purpose. The bull (laughs) is there because the wind has that characteristic in that area. And I think that I, I think I got this from you, but you had talked to, I, I don't know, could have not been, I don't know, quote me if I'm wrong, correct me if I'm wrong. The, like a trout sitting in a back eddy. I 1000% think bull elk will sit in a back eddy the same way, you know, a, a wind back eddy, the same way a trout sits in a back eddy because like he knows he's getting 360. And actually, if you, if you understand the predator prey dynamics of wind, it also allows, I mean, <laughs> To some extent, elk are avoiding humans, but a lot of what they do is not based on that habitat. They're based on other predators like bears and cougars. And so what happens is when you sit in that back eddy, it, it seems to work well to, to deter humans or, or, keep, or to pick up humans faster than they can pick up you. But also what happens is with predator-prey dynamics, the, the predator is viewing the world on scent. And he's not using his eyes and his ears like we do. We assume that every other animal hunts like we do. They're, they see the world in smell. And there's a great little video. It's like how the, what's the video? It's how the dog smells or how the dog sees. Yeah. And it talks about how it understands like how a dog can go through an area and tell the history of the entire area based on those scent particles left behind. Well, a bear that's traveling around looking for food sees the mountain the same way. And what happens is when you, when you sit in a back eddy, it basically spreads that scent 360 and it confuses that animal a little bit more, buys the, the prey a little more time to pick that predator up before he, the predator picks up the prey. No, it, it's true. And they're, they are getting the entire history of, of what's occurring there. And I think now would probably be a good time to talk about the different types of scents that that we produce right so there's there's a scent plume or a scent column that's like aerosol so imagine that you're just walking around and you've got a can of spray paint you're just holding your finger on top of it so you've just got this aerosol you know skin cells um you know all all the all the aerated odors that are coming off you are just kind of blowing downstream um and they can go they can go a long ways. Um, as as they get farther away from you, they disperse, and you know these are actual packets of, of molecules that have bacteria on them and things like that. So that's what is going inside of an elk's nose, getting caught inside the membrane, the folded tissue inside their nose, and then creating a chemical response that then gets transferred to their brain and tells them good, bad, scary, whatever. Um, an elk thinks, um, and then you have your, your, um, scent trail or your, your, your odorants that are coming off your body. And these are the bigger tissue items, more like skin cells, hair follicles, um, dirt that's been on you. That's been infused by sweat and it's falling off of you constantly. And it just goes a little ways and then lands on the ground. So when that bear or or dog or elk or whatever comes through and it's sniffing the ground, it's sniffing the things that have fallen off of the human body. And when you have bloodhounds that are following people days later, it's not that scent plume that they're following. 
Um, it is their, their odor trail that, you know, are those actual molecules that have come off their body. And if you think about the way stuff floats down a river, that's how you can think about that stuff. So it's going to eddy around trees. Um, it's going to get stuck to stuff. If it goes over a little ridge, you know, there's going to be another eddy right there. And those molecules can fall out and land on the ground. They don't just go downwind forever. And, you know, as they disperse, they lose efficacy. And an elk needs to encounter a few of those in order to be able to actually detect you know, what it's smelling. And that's why we talk about, especially with fish, how many parts per million a catfish can smell a scent molecule or a sturgeon can smell, can smell a scent molecule. And I think with catfish, it's, it's absurd. It's like one part per 10 million. Really? Um, <laughs> yeah. So their, their whole body, they can sense stuff. My friend Ben Bishop um, calls them the swimming tongue um, which sounds like a creepy sex move, but really like an, a catfish's entire body, uh, is, is dedicated to receiving scent in the water. Um, and we can think of it as scent. We can think of it as taste, but that's, that's how they're experiencing the world. And because their entire body is a receptor for those scents, um, they can get a really small portion of it. And then with, with humans, you know, we think that we're bad at the wind because we don't smell things very well. But let me ask you this, Cody. Why do you think you have hair on your arm? Oh, that's interesting. Is it a detection system? Sure. It's not for insulation. Yeah. It's not for looks. But that helps you detect the wind, right? We need to be able to feel which way the wind is blowing. Mm. Interesting. And you think that's, that's just evolutionary passed down? Yep. So in your opinion, we talked a little bit about like you were talking about leaving a trail um, and, and how that scent sticks to things and whatnot. Do you have concern for when you're hunting areas that you're going to hunt repetitively, do you have concern about moving through areas that you shouldn't or moving through bedding areas in particular because of those scent trails or like leaving scent molecules on a particular piece of the mountain that you don't want interrupted? Absolutely. And one of the, one of the ways to kill that, which is tough because there's a loss to go with it as well. But if you can move through open areas where the sun's going to hit the ground, the UV is going to kill that scent faster than anything. Um, oh, but it, then you can be seen. Yeah. So if you move through timbered areas where it's shady all the time, your scent's going to last a really long time. Um, and think about it like animal carcasses. If you find a, a carcass out on a south, it's like bleached bones turn into powder, could have been killed two weeks ago. <laughs> if it's in a you know, steep and deep, scary, dark north, I mean, it might as well be a fossil, right? Yeah. Like th that can be a, a mummified whatever <laughs> that you know, was there for the last 14,000 years. So when you move through an area, are you trying... Like I've always avoided open areas for like, you never know what's watching you. Like just try to stay within, like if I had the option, say I'm moving across some parks, I would move through timber to timber. Do you move through the wide open based on scent? No, not if I'm doing run and gun type hunting, but if I'm walking into a tree stand or something like that, stay I will, open. I'll stay in the open on my way in and That's hope that the sun kills that scent so that if an elk comes over that trail, that there's no indication on the ground to, uh, to prevent him from coming on in. 
Okay. Scent control. When it comes to elk, how much do you do? How much do you worry about it? And what is like best practice? I don't do anything. (laughs) Um, Stay away from flowery soaps. Um, So one one of the things that, that really stood out to me as I was reading this book on, um, on the Pacific crest trail and the author said that you'll know when somebody's on the trail who isn't actually through hiking because you'll smell them based on their soap. Interesting. So they, they become, uh, I guess through hikers are pretty notorious for being fairly smelly, but the off, the off or the, the distinguishing difference that you would smell if you were around that all the time would be like soap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, she didn't say anything about smelling other through hikers, uh, which makes me think that it's something that is a lot more natural, something that is, is normal for, for humans to be able to smell a certain way, especially if you're, um, eating a little bit more natural foods. Yeah. But if you're, you know, covering yourself up in, you know, some kind of synthetic flowery stuff, um, that's probably going to be a, a cue to animals to, you know, not come near you. What's but your personal? Stink. Oh, no, stink, uh, you know, an, sure. an animal that's downwind is going to smell us like, you know, you can buy whatever, whatever spray you want. Uh, I, I just don't think that it's that beneficial for elk hunting. What's your thought on campfire smoke? I love it. And smoke actually has some qualities that can, um, can help you with your own scent. So there's the reason that, um, that people, you know, native traditions would like cleanse themselves with smoke. Um, from, from sage rush or stuff like that. There's, there's a spiritual element to it, um, but there's a practical element to it as well. And um, smoke, smoke is great. I've, I've killed plenty of elk um, when I had a fire going actively. I've seen elk in, in wildfires that were actively burning. I don't think that smoke is a bad thing to an elk. Yeah. I, I mean, don't throw your candy wrappers in it. That's what I was just going to say. I was just thinking weird smoke. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, man, if you burn, you burn a mountain house package, you can smell that smell. If I can smell it on me for days, someone, the elk, anything can smell it, you know, with a nose 10 times as good as mine can smell it longer than that. I do not burn any garbage whatsoever. Candy wrappers or anything. Cause man, I, I just smell it. And I know if I could smell it, they can smell it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the snacks that I really like to carry are these, um, your energy bars and they have completely, um, compostable packaging. Even the ink on the package is compostable. So you don't have to burn that stuff. And if you don't want to pack it out, it's going to dissolve right there in the backcountry. Um, so stuff like that, when you can find it, it is definitely beneficial. Nice. Um, alrighty. I think we, I mean, we covered everything I want to cover as far as wind. Is there any like any yeah. two cents that you figure I didn't get to? So one of the things that I've been thinking about and talking about a little bit lately is, you know, and I was getting it, getting to it with the arm hair, but you need to be able to feel when the wind is moving. And the thing that I keep hearing Hunter say is I felt the wind on the back of my neck. It's like, dude, you are losing. If, you know, the back of your neck is the only place on the back of your body that you can feel the wind. Um, so if you can get some really breathable clothes that let the wind go through them, then you are turning your body 
back into the sensory organ that, that it was meant to be. So think about that when you're buying clothes, like, am I going to be able to feel the wind through this? Was that wind slowly changing for the last 30 seconds and I could have gotten out of there and readjusted and made the most of this opportunity before I completely blew it. No, that's a, that's a really good point. Uh, kind of on that note, when we talk about those backities, we had mentioned like, Oh yeah, elk like to live in those backities. How do you deal with that particular situation? So feel the wind on your back and neck, feel the wind on your body, whatever you want to call it. Do you back out? Do you not even try to kill that elk? Because I have, I've been around elk where they were like in the impossible spot and you almost have to wait for them to come out of that situation or inevitably you end up bumping them in that situation. Like, and I've learned to notice when it's happened. And now that I understand the back eddy rule, I, I see it a lot more and I'll see it before it even happens. And it's like, okay, I got to wait till that bull makes a mistake because where he is, is it's not completely unkillable, but it's damn tough. Yeah. I would rather defeat their eyes in their ears than their nose. Um, and I've done some stalking on elk where they had every opportunity to see me and didn't. And I'm not that stealthy of a guy. <laughs> um, so yeah, if, if you're time crunching, it's like it's, it's do or die time, um, then try to defeat their eyes and ears. But don't, don't just roll the dice and think maybe the wind gods are going to help me because they're not. That never happens. No, never. <laughs> yeah. Which is funny because I, I do feel like we tend to lean towards that because we assume they're going to see us. Uh, we assume they're going to hear us. I mean, those are the two senses that we rely on more and we don't rely on scent. So we tend to play Russian roulette with the scent. You know what I mean? Like it just never pans out. Yeah. Don't, don't treat the elk like you're trying to sneak up on a person. Try and treat it like you're trying to sneak up on an elk. Uh, that's really good. Two cents, man. Uh, also want to touch on your new podcast. How's that going? It's going great. I'm learning a lot. I'm getting to talk with some really interesting people. I'm kind of bouncing around with the format and it's fun to see, you know, what I enjoy and, and what other people enjoy. It, it's been a lot of fun. Dude. I, you know, I kind of prodded you to do it, but, uh, I mean, you have all the reasons. I mean, you're a very, very knowledgeable, but I think what happens when you do a podcast is you get, you get the opportunity to interview and talk to more people, uh, which is the best part of a podcast. You get to just have these great conversations that I guess for me, I would probably not normally get to, or even at a minimum, like would not set the time to do. And I think like a podcast is a great way to force yourself into that. Yeah. And they're intentional conversations for sure. Like a lot of the conversations that we have in our normal life are just sort of haphazard and you're trying to follow some kind of a, a format and you may or may not be interested in it. I um, mean, you're just doing your best, you know, yeah. maybe that's just me. I don't know. But when you sit down to have a podcast, it's like, Hey, we are going to talk about this and we're going to explore it together and, and see how deep we can get into it and see what, what can benefit the both of us in, in a really normal way that that's on purpose. <laughs> and I don't know. I've been, I, I just did a, a, a big hike through the backcountry, and, uh, you know, got, got to have some, some time to think about intention. And I was thinking about quotes that I'd read over time. And, you know, Teddy Roosevelt said that we should live vigorously. And when Henry David Thoreau moved, um, to Walden pond, it was to live with intention. 
And I was thinking about how we're, we're losing some of that and we're a little bit more reactionary in our lives now. So if you can do things with intention, I think that you can get a different result from what you get in the rest of your normal life. What does, what does living in t- with intention look like for you? Uh, for me, it means that, that I'm being creative in the way that I set goals and I'm being considerate about what could go wrong um, and whether that's actually wrong or whether it's just my inability to actually predict something. And, you know, then how do I deal with that? And how do I continue to, to develop myself and my skills and, and my understanding? Yeah, I think it, it's just a little bit more absorbed in, in the moment and being present and uh, thinking about what's going on. Do you have a podcast guest that you would like, Hey, here's the dream, dream guess. I'm, I'm surprised by, by where all of these conversations go. You know, I write down a, a couple sentences that, that I want to cover a little bit. And then the rest of it is, is just sort of what happens. I don't know if I have a dream guest, Cody. What about you? Man, you just turned that right around on me. Uh, <laughs> similarly, like I think one thing I've learned throughout the podcasting thing is like the the ones that I thought were going to be so great are usually lackluster, and the conversations that I didn't, the greatest conversations come from interviews and or guests and or times when I least expected it. And so, like those are the conversations where I'm like, those are I'm stoked about. I'm like, man, that was really fun. And maybe because it's unintentional or, or unexpected that I really enjoy that. Um, I don't know if I have a dream guest per se. I just really look forward to like all those conversations that are going to be outside the norm uh, of podcasts we normally have or whatever, but like unexpected greatness, if, if that's a thing. Yeah. And if you can get one, one killer sentence, one heavy hitting statement, that is what affects people. Yeah. Like I, the feedback that I get isn't, Hey man, that was, that was a banger podcast. You, you killed it. You know, I was riveted for 53 minutes. <laughs> what I get is like, you know, so at some point during that, like you hit a nerve, Yeah. but in a good way and something clicks for somebody and that helps them understand so much more. So that's, that's sort of what I'm looking for in my normal life. Like I'm, I'm trying to take in and go get involved in these really big experiences, but it's not for the whole experience. I'm looking for that, for that one moment. Um, And during a hunting season, it's no different. Like I'm not just trying to, you know, take in six months of solid hunting. It's, it's just a couple moments that are like, wow, that's what I'm going to hold on to. For sure. For sure. For sure. Uh, Some of the best advice I got, because it's easy to fall into like the content trap of trying to create content for everyone. And the advice kind of goes something to the effect of like create holy shit content for 20% of the people. Something that when you create content, like someone out there is going to be like, Oh my God, that was amazing. It may not be for everyone, but the 20% of people that just absolutely loved it and were amazed by it, it's going to affect deeply. And that's the thing is like, you just move that needle around. You try to find, you know, that, that, Oh shit moment or that Holy shit moment that 
fits a small majority because when you try to create content for everyone, or you try to like ask the questions you think are going to get the biggest audience, it tends to like go directly at no one. Whereas, you know, if you talk directly to the underwater basket weaver, they're like, God, that was the greatest podcast on underwater basket weaving I've ever heard. And they're touched or moved by it <laughs> to some degree. Yeah. I, I like stuff that's specialized too. Um, I've got a guy coming up in, in a couple of weeks, um, a, a very famous chef that I'm super excited to do a podcast with. And I've been thinking about how somebody becomes famous as a chef. Like, do you make a meal that a few people are ecstatic about? Or do you make a meal that everybody loves? And I was kind of thinking about food and I was like, you know what really killed it? Macaroni and cheese. Like there's a recipe that we got a billion kids to like. Yeah. Like the most choosy demographic. They're like, give me that craft son. <laughs> you know, like the people that, that dialed in the macaroni and cheese recipe, those are culinary geniuses. You know, the hamburger is a culinary masterpiece. Yeah. So I'm excited to talk with him about like, what, what the hell's good food? Like how, how yeah. do you get to where you are? It's yeah. really interesting to me. I just heard that there's like a, there's cornhole on um, ESPN, probably the yeah. Ocho. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'd love to talk to a professional cornhole player. I think that'd be hilarious. I'd yeah. probably learn some stuff. No, hundred percent. And like, I mean, that's kind of the thing about podcasting is like, if you ask the the everyday lay person, like we do an entire podcast on elk hunting, they're like, what the, what do you talk about? <laughs> I could, like to, if you didn't know anything, right. You'd be like, what you guys are going to talk about wind for an hour. Like what the hell is wrong with you? You know, like, but that's the, I mean, that's the cool thing about podcasting. And you know, there's, you know, when people say like, Oh, are you going to run out of guests? Man, there's an infinite number of interesting people doing weird, interesting shit that you could interview. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, uh, it's really fun. And I appreciate your encouragement. Um, Cody Kellum, you know, he was, he was on me. He was texting me like every couple of weeks for a while. He's like, I haven't heard a podcast yet. And I was like, oh, I'm working on it. And then, uh, you know, it's a lot. And it, it took a lot of, a lot of help from a lot of people to, to figure out the equipment. And, you know, I've got a long ways to go, but I'm, I'm enjoying the process and it's been really fun and I'm grateful to you. Uh, one of my buddies, Ty Leary, he was in this very similar boat, very similar timeline. And for like the last three months, he's been working on this podcast or whatever. And uh, so I keep hounding him because we had recorded one, I, th I don't know, it was three or four episode. I and mean, we just did it. I think it was last week. Uh, it finally came out, but this like happened like two months ago. So I've been hounding him like, dude, just get it out there. Like once you hit, once you hit go, it forces you to kind of keep going. And it's like, it is a lot of work up front but once you get it out there like it like you have a little bit of motivation to keep going and getting interviews or doing these conversations like it does it forces your hand yep yeah i've i've missed one deadline right now i'm in um like harvest mode where i'm just trying to get a bunch of them stocked up because i know that you know come the end of august that i'm pretty much going to be on the road and in the woods for the next six months um so i'm i'm going hard on it right now but uh <laughs> dude same yeah. here that's like yeah and the funny thing is like i really thought i'd be caught up by now <laughs> not even close like every time i get like two or three weeks ahead uh i lose track and then all of a sudden it's like oh 
I don't have anything. So my goal <laughs> is to record three a week for the next like six weeks. Nice. Nice. At least, at least have September covered and we'll like, we'll wing it through the rest of the year. <laughs> well, I, I want to leave guys with a couple things on wind. Cause we, we kind of got into the, the nuance of it, but don't get, don't get intimidated by this stuff and don't feel pressured. Like if you watch, if you watch wild predators, um, they don't force situations. You know, they, they will spend a night on an empty stomach so that they can kill something tomorrow. Um, and we don't always have the luxury of more time. So sometimes you just have to bonsai in there and go for it and, and hope for the best. But don't, don't force it. And then when, when you feel like the wind is switched, give it a little bit of time to stabilize. Um, I've made that mistake more times than I feel comfortable admitting to people. Because I, I get excited and I'm eager. And I'm like, woohoo! thermal switch let's go yeah. and it's like no they did for a second but yeah. now they're going to go back the other way because you've got this this suction backdraft effect creating high pressure and low pressure and then if you really really want to learn wind um start shooting long range with a 308 <laughs> yes because uh like i was on my home range yesterday literally 50 yards from my house shooting a target that I shoot on an almost daily basis. And I missed the wind call by a foot on a wow. 500 yard target. Um, and like, there's just more to learn all the time. And this wind was directly in my face at my shooting position. And I was explaining wind to a young shooter and we we're going through all of it. And, you know, I gave him the wind call, taught him about the reticle. He broke the shot and he was off by a foot and he shot again. He's off by a foot. I was like, that, that's me. That's my, <laughs> um, that's I, insane. Yeah. So you've, you've just got to learn, you've got to learn, um, learn the wind and you have to learn it by living in it. You know, for a guy that shoots a kitchen sink for an arrow, you apparently can't take your own lessons when it comes to bullets. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in the in the short action world that I'm living in right now, the 308 is the is the kitchen sink. I know, I'm just giving you credit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, and back to the like making sure it sets. I was laughing because I on more than one occasion have beaten down a path walking back and forth when I would sit there and be like, oh, it's go time and start to like and make it like a hundred yards and on the window switch, I'd walk back and then think it would switch. And like, if you were just an observer looking from across the mountain, you'd be like, that's a crazy person down there. That's no idea what they're doing. <laughs> so like, um, it, it happens. Yeah. Lay on the ground, man. Um, you know, utilize all that vegetation that's possible to decrease the amount of wind that's hitting you. And if you get jammed up, lay flat on the ground. That's what a coyote does. That's what a mountain lion does. Um, they tuck their ears flat. Like they get as close to the ground as they possibly can. And, you know, it's, it's not just about the, the visual representation of that predator being out there. So do, do everything you can. Get behind a big brushy tree so that you're in the eddy. You know, think, think about it. And if the only thing you can do is react to a bad situation, then react in the smartest way that you can. For sure. And I think that's, that's where you run into it is 90, 99% of the problem time you have a problem with the wind. It's that last little bit 
where, and I, I'm sure this happened to you, where I'm too committed at this point to back out, uh, and the wind is bad. And you're sitting there praying to the wind gods, but that's, I mean, it's about all you can do, you know. And that's where I think people will you'll you'll figure out wind real quick. You're like, I can't go back. It's too late. Yeah, yeah it's also a good time to try to overstimulate an elk with something else. You know, get aggressive about raking or or whatever type of calling that you're doing. Um, make a bunch of scuffling noises on the ground. Like try to try to appeal to their other senses so that those those sense receptions get a little bit stronger in his mind. You know, the, these are hail mary things that you can do. But I've I've done it. I've done it successfully. I've had elk that got shot at and missed, and then came back in on the downwind side and then, you know, put their nose in the air and barked. And I got so aggressive with raking in that situation that, you know, my hands were cut to pieces. I had bruises on my hands. Um, I had pitch inside my ears. Like I, I was murdering this tree. Um, and I got that elk to come back in and get shot at again. He got missed again, but (laughs) yeah, he came back. Um, he came back on the downwind side after we've, we'd already, blown blown him up by letting him see us shoot at him by hearing us shoot at him the arrow going over his back um all that and this was an early season bull that wasn't really rut charged this was a, a curiosity thing um so there there are things that you can do and and you should be willing to try don't don't give up just because it started to go wrong but also you know be patient if you can I would say be patient if you can, but I was just going to say something that's probably counterintuitive or I don't know, you may scoff at this, but like there's times where you have to force your hand, you know, and force a situation. I have been in situations where if I let the elk think about it too long, you know, it was going to go sideways. I just felt like it was going to go sideways and I had to force the situation, whether it was stepping out in the wide open to get a shot because, you know, he's in bow range. I don't have a shot. I'm feeling swirly winds and it's just that, that time, that internal clock is ticking where I know you know, things are about to go sideways. I'm either going to force the shot and get it, or it's going to go completely sideways. But regardless, it was going to go sideways in about 42 seconds anyway. So let's see what happens. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Just Good times. Uh, Oak yeah. season. Close. Oh, it is close. It, as soon as June 1st happens, I just go, I feel panicked. I'm like, I'm out of time. It's over. You know, I'm, I'm out of time. I only, <laughs> I only have two and a half months. Um, and at this point, you know, I, I feel like, you know, I'm on a, on a kook slams video and, and I'm just standing on the beach watching this wave. I'm like, yep, there's nothing to be done. Just let it hit me. <laughs> uh, the switch for me is usually, well, like tack event in my head. That's the switch. Like it is go time. And it just feels like, okay, I got one month to clean up my act, get, everything in line and then it's go time and it feels like go time. So I'm ready. Yeah. Man. yeah I just dropped my, my bow off so I could get a new string put on. Cause I've shot it enough that my strings all, all fuzzied out. Um, that, that feels good to me. Like that feels like an adequate amount of shooting. If I've worn out a string, um, <laughs> I'm shooting, shooting. Okay. So we'll see. Uh, I've, I've been calling a lot. I'm, I'm working, um, I'm trying some new, some new calls, some new bugles that, uh, that I'm kind of excited about. So, uh, Liberty game calls and I haven't fully endorsed this thing yet. Um, cause I'm still getting used to it, but they have 
kind of an old school grunt tube that's made out of soft rubber. Um, so it doesn't clang on anything and it doesn't have the same back pressure that a bat or a mini bat has, but I'm able to hit lower notes quite a bit better. And I'm trying to achieve the actual two tone bugle that an elk has where it's got a low tone and a high tone simultaneously. And this call is getting me closer to it than I've ever gotten before. So I'm, I'm excited to continue develop, developing my skill with that call. Um, and I think it, it'll definitely be part of my quiver this year, but always trying to, you know, experiment and innovate as much as I can. You're really good at finding new gear too. I think you're better than that uh, than me. Um, what other new pro do you have any other new products that you're stoked about this year? Um, there's a, there's a tapered FMJ that, you know, is a really incredible arrow, uh, that, that I can't afford. <laughs> I, I wish that I could, but it's, it's a great arrow. Um, so I'm excited to see more people adopt that and hopefully it drives the price down a little bit to where, you know, more people can reach it. Um, I am continuing to use the Garmin zero site for practice and in the States where it's legal. That thing is absolutely awesome. It's going to reduce wounding by huge margins. Um, it actually limits people so that, you know, if, if somebody hasn't practiced at a range, it won't let them shoot at that range, which I think is great. So it, it kind of keeps people from airballing arrows, um, yeah. just kind of hope in the heart mentality. So I'm excited to see range finding sites continue to develop. Um, I have a pair of stabilized binoculars from SIG this year. Those are an incredible, incredible game changer. They are, <laughs> I kid you not, they are better than glassing off of a tripod. How is it better? You told me this before when you're at my house. How is it better than a tr glassing off a tripod? Because when you glass on a tripod, um, there's, there's vibrations, right? Even on a super sturdy tripod, if you, if you touch that optic, then it vibrates a little bit. Yeah. Um, the vibration is completely gone with stabilized binoculars. And these things are six ounces lighter, and they're like it's only 60% of the price of, of regular optical you know, eight powers or 10 powers. So I think, I think it's just a tremendous game changer being able to actually one hand my binos without resting it on my bow or doing anything garbagey like that. Yeah. Um, that's insane. It's huge. It's so huge. I, I have a, I have a buddy who also uses those. I won't say who, but, uh, freaking loves them and swears by them as well. Um, not the SIG ones. He's actually had like the, I don't know, one of some camera company that had them years and years ago. Um, and yeah, can't, I don't, Canon, um, Canon's had them Canon out for a Sonic. while. Panasonic had them. Yeah. Yeah. But they're huge. You know, they're these massive yeah. things that looked like a, um, a VHS recorder from like 1991, <laughs> like came with a shoulder strap and this crazy stuff. But yeah, these things are 16 ounces. They're tiny. Um, so you get cool. 20 hours out of uh, out of a battery like it's amazing and if you're like oh that's not enough like okay dude <laughs> i've actually worn one of these batteries out and it took me like weeks of glassing oh, really? to actually spend 20 hours in the glass huh that's interesting uh what broadheads you shooting this year i'm shooting the i'm still shooting cayugas um they have a gen 2 of their pilot cut so now they come pre-sharpened 
and you can add a bleeder blade if you want to. So it's still a single piece of metal, um, but there is a cutout in the middle of the metal where you can put a bleeder in there if you feel like you need that. And, you know, since I'm one broadhead, one arrow for everything, I kind of like that modularity if, say, I wanted to hunt turkeys um, or I was going to go hunt whitetail where, you know, they're not going to stop my arrow no matter what. So I can, I can add a little bit of cutting um, to, to benefit that and, and not have to worry about penetration. Or I can hunt elk where penetration is, is paramount. And then I can continue having success with that same broadhead. So having a, a modular system and a broadhead that doesn't have moving parts is novel. And with it coming pre-sharpened, um, they do a better job of sharpening than, than I did. So it's, it's awesome. Nice. Uh, real quick. I know you gotta get going. Uh, Kudu. So I shoot kudos. Uh, they just came out with a bleeder. Are you pro bleeder or not pro bleeder for elk? Mind for you, elk. the problem I've had, and not really a problem, the kudu freaking blows through elk. Like I can't even find my arrow on the other side. Yeah. Um, and, and that's great. And, and the kudu is a good broadhead and it's, it's really accurate and it's pretty sturdy. That tip can bend over a little bit if you, if you glance off of, of a hard bone and then your arrow is not going to continue to track straight forward, which is a problem with penetration, but they do penetrate well. And they're really sharp and they're fairly easy to sharpen if you just have like a dowel rod with, um, with some sandpaper over the top of it. Great way to sharpen that is basically free at a hardware store. Um, but a bleeder on an elk, it, it just isn't necessary. You're doing plenty of cutting. With a cut on contact broadhead like that, it's pressing the skin in before it starts cutting. So you actually get a wider cut through the skin than the outside diameter of the blade. And then because it's corkscrewing, um, because of those single bevels as it goes through the, through the body cavity, you, you are also getting a longer cut because it's a curved cut, just like you know a, a screw may only be two inches long, but if you follow the actual um, cutting surface on the screw, it would be a lot longer than that. For sure. Um, so I, I just don't, I don't see it as necessary at all. Um, it's a complete myth that a single blade wound can close up. Um, that's just not how skin works. Uh, so if you, you know, made a straight line cut on your forearm, it wouldn't close up. Like it, it just doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, skin pull pulls away because it's elastic. So yeah, that's, that's just not a thing. And then what I'll continue to, to tell people about for those who haven't heard it yet is that a good shot on an elk does not bleed, does not bleed. Like they're, they can fit all the blood in their body inside their chest cavity. So unless you shoot them low in the chest cavity so that as it fills up to that point, it can start spilling out, you're not going to get much of a blood trail. You're just going to go 70 yards and find a dead bull. Yeah. Yeah. And that's dude, my last uh, three elk with kudus died within sight zero well no blood trail but at the same time it's like yeah under yep. 50 yards is not much of a blood trail yeah if i go over there and i start seeing little splashes of blood um that is telling me that we're dealing with muscle blood and i'm i'm getting nervous at that point yeah yeah so i'd rather see a bloody arrow and no blood on the ground because that can that's going to give me confidence that i'm going to find that bull quickly for sure for sure 
All right, man. Uh, appreciate it. And they got to run. Uh, thanks everybody. Go check out six ranch podcast. Is that right? Yeah. Six ranch podcast, iTunes, Spotify, all the things. Um, James, awesome dude. Good friend. Married me one time. Uh, and it's got a good podcast. So go check it out. We'll put links in the show notes. I appreciate it. Anything else we can do to help you? No, buddy. Just, uh, go out there and be safe and have fun. And, um, yeah, have a, have a good season and people can always, can always reach out and, uh, and I'll, I'll help them in any way that I can. Always good for it. Alrighty, James. Thank you, sir. All right, brother. Later, man. If you want the blueprint that I developed after interviewing hundreds of the best elk hunters in the world and 20 plus years of my own hunting experience, check out my new elk hunt 201 course. It's a four step system for doubling your success. It's a framework to give you a step-by-step system that you can build off of for finding elk, getting close to elk, and killing elk without getting lucky. Check it out. Link in the show notes.